God's word for us today is from John in chapter 20. This is Jesus appearing to his disciples. Am I, am I, is my house mic on? Jesus appearing to his disciples in the upper room. After uh, the disciples met there, he had risen from the dead. They were afraid. They, he had, they had locked the doors. And now uh, a few short verses of that conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 21. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. So how'd your latest do-it-yourself project go? In my house right now, if I would, after doing do-it-yourself projects a number of times, if I say to my wife, Kara, I think I can do that by myself, she rolls her eyes. And that's the, that's the signal for, honey, call the professionals. Uh, maybe it was uh, for you, your Pinterest fingernail fail that ended up making your, your hands look more like a Halloween get-up part of costume than the real thing that it was supposed to be. Or uh, maybe if, for you, your do-it-yourself project was uh, the, the bathroom sink and that you installed the faucet a few inches too far back from the sink so that when you turned it on, the water like just dropped right onto the countertop. Uh, or that fancy denim swing for your kid and when you put them in it, they just kind of start choking. Yeah, so something meant to be very good ends up going terribly bad. I'd imagine the disciples, the followers of Jesus, felt like that after he rose from the dead. But he, he was crucified and he was killed. And after that point, they, they knew, I mean, they had put all their hopes in him. We had hoped he'd be the one, they said. And they had, they had lost some friends. They had even lost their careers. They had liquidated assets, sold their homes. Some of them did. Because this, Jesus gave them new life and new purpose. And then the project went bad. Jesus was arrested. And they ran. And then Jesus was killed, and they hid in an upper room, and they locked the doors, and they were afraid, and they were confused, and they were paralyzed. Something meant to be good had gone terribly bad for them. Why don't you imagine for a second a, a relationship that you have with a person, a group, an organization that has gone bad. It's gone south. It's gone sour. It used to be good. There was a point where it engaged you. You were excited about it. But now when you think about or, or write the name of that person or that group, that organization, it, it, you just kind of breathe a sigh of, of disappointment, maybe even a huff of irritation. It's just it's not the same as it used to be. It's a struggle. Uh, and what's happened is that the, the devil has done his job of wedging in between you and that other person, that group, that organization, wedging into it sin. 
and ruining the once harmonious relationship you had with that, with a friend, a family member, a, a career connection, even, even church. So now what? Well, first of all this, when it comes to sin, don't do nothing. When it comes to sin, don't do nothing. I'll answer that in two parts, the, the sin part and the don't do nothing part. So the sin part is pretty easy. Where is sin? If, it, if you take a relationship and you look at that relationship uh, and you put it under the microscope, where in that relationship, in, in what person in that relationship would you find sin? It's kind of ask, like asking, where are germs? Well, everywhere. Even in spots that we normally consider clean, like, you know, studies have shown, like, like your kitchen sink has more germs in it than your toilet. So that you know, that stray piece of bacon that fell in your kitchen sink and you picked it up and next time you do that, you just take it to your toilet, wash it off, and then eat it. And it'll have fewer germs, right? So <laughs> there's just a lot more dirtiness and germs. We can't see the germs. They're not obvious. And, it, and you just take tests, literally take swabs of stuff in your house. You'd be amazed where there's more germs than you would really like. That's true in life. It's true in relationships. So go find the germs. Go find the sin. In a relationship that you're struggling with, go find it. And remember, there are no totally 100% innocent parties when there is sin in a relationship. I've sat in counseling and said that statement, and this is what I normally hear then when I say that statement to someone. But pastor, he hit me. But she lied to me. But he's a drunk. But she's a two-faced, manip manipulative bully. And I say, yes. Agreed. There's sin, but it's not the only sin on the scene. Go find yours. Build a greater, honest, real awareness in your life of, of your own sin, and then, then go to God about that. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart, and we say, what? He's a murderer and he's an adulterer. How can he be after God's own heart? Because David was so open, so transparent and real with God. It wasn't that David was less of a sinner than you or me. Maybe he was even more of a sinner, but, but he was real. He had this awareness. So David says in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know what that's called? Right there? It's called repentance. Do it every day. Do it with every problem. Do it in every relationship. And then, listen to this. This is what the Bible says then in Proverbs. 
right? This is the premier book of wisdom in the Bible, and the book of Proverbs says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Listen to this closely now. Listen to this closely. Pay attention. You will prosper in your relationships if, first, you renounce your own sins before reacting to the sins of others. Right? This, God's Word says it right here. You, you will prosper in your relationships if, first, you renounce your own sins before reacting to the sins of others. That's both a command of God, and what does he, God, God always do when he gives us command? He attaches a, a promise, right? So it's a command of God but that's filled with a promise. We'll find mercy. You, don't be afraid of God. Don't, don't be afraid of being real with God. You will find mercy. All right, so unresolved sin. That's when, when we have a series that's now 10 weeks long on forgiveness, we end up talking a lot about sin. And it's been great as we, we've dived deep into this because the better understanding we have of the reality of sin, the, the greater understanding and appreciation we have for forgiveness. So unresolved sin, when we do nothing about sin, that's, that's, that's like those leftover containers in the refrigerator that make it to the back of the refrigerator and then you open the fridge, you're like, something smells in there. Right? Or like those uh, brown bag lunches that people at work leave in the, the fridge in the, right, in the common cafeteria area, and pretty soon something starts leaking through the, that brown bag, and it creates a sticky little puddle, and, and it starts smelling, and right, it just, if you do nothing to those, it actually does something. It makes the problem worse. So, I just threw out some old cabbage in our refrigerator yesterday, so it made me think of this. Um, if I've done nothing with that, that rotting cabbage in our fridge, it, it's just going to get worse. The smell's going to get worse, right? So don't do nothing when it comes to unresolved sin. Do something. Take action. So we've talked so far then about um, where there is sin, don't do nothing. Talked about taking action first in myself. I, I renounce my own sin, right? Jesus said that his parable about, right, there's a, there's a beam in my eye and I want to pick out the speck in someone else's eye. Jesus says, take care of the beam first. That beam is, it blinds you. You can't see. You have a lot of assumptions that aren't true, a lot of judgments that are false, a lot of your own opinions that you're enamored with that aren't valid at all. Take the beam out, Jesus says. Then, he wants us to. Then take the speck out of the other person's eye. Jesus wants you to not do nothing about someone else's sin, but make sure you're not doing it with, with the beam of sin in your own eye first. Take that, that plank out. And now, what's the challenge with approaching someone else about their sin? I can think of a number of them. It can be hard to approach someone else about their sin because I myself am a sinful person. I might feel like I'm being judgmental. It can be hard to approach them because I'm afraid that the bomb is going to go off. Like letting the lion out of the cage is going to create hard feelings, shrapnel flying everywhere, anger, misunderstanding, mess, right? Uh, 
basically, Jesus and the Bible say we have to get past that. If we truly love God, love God's word, and love that person, we will approach that other person about their sin. That's, that's the truth. Think of it this way. What's the worst thing that can happen if you're knowledgeable, if someone has sinned against you, what's the worst thing that can happen? God says this when he's talking to Ezekiel. Uh, he, he, he puts it in a bit of a parable, picturing a guard on top of a city wall watching for the enemy. And God, this is God speaking, he says this, if the watchman sees the sword coming, the enemy, and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. So, what's the worst thing that can happen? Here's the scenario. Someone else sins, they become a victim of the enemy, so to speak, right? I say nothing, I approach them, I, I, I do nothing. I don't approach them, I don't hold them accountable, I hum humbly, I don't do anything. God is saying here, God will judge them and me. Now God's judging two people in that scenario. But if God says they've sinned and I do approach them, that's one less person God's going to judge. Now there's only one that God might judge and pray to God that by his mercy, my approach to them leads them to repent too. And now I not only save myself, but that person, right? Paul, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4 uh, to Timothy, young pastor, right? Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. I'm not their savior, but I, I have been the agent then. And now there's zero people judged versus two. Don't say anything, two people judged. Do something, God willing, God, by his mercy, zero people judged. See which is better, right? So, Jesus believed that wholeheartedly, which is why he approached his followers, his disciples, after he rose from the dead, and he didn't do nothing about these followers of his. Now remember, they had fallen asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. They had, uh, after that, when he was arrested, they had uh, fled from him, they had run. Peter later denied him, and so this is where they're at. That, after Jesus was killed then, they were in this upper room, afraid that they were going to be next. They were looking after their own skin, and they had fallen away from Jesus, and he appears to them. And what does he say? First of all, he, after he rose from the dead, the very first people on earth that he goes to are not his earthly enemies, but his earthly friends. He still considered his disciples his friends. He still considered them his followers. And so he goes to them, and what are the words that he spoke? We just heard them in John 20. Peace be with you. And he says that phrase multiple times in the gospel accounts of his conversations with his disciples after he rose from the dead. Multiple times it says Jesus told them, peace be with you. Sure, he approached them as his fallen followers. Sure, he reminded them about their fallen faith. But he also 
reminded them of his words of promise. He also showed them his wounds in his hand and his side and his feet, his wounds that he suffered for them, for his disciples. Imagine the power of that moment. I mean, if you're Peter or John or Andrew or Matthew, and you're, you've fallen asleep in the Gethsemane when Jesus asked you to pray, or you, or you ran away, you hid, you didn't go out to the cross to encourage him when he was dying, how would you feel about Jesus and, and your relationship? I, I would be devastated, right? Maybe even a little scared. And then when he appears, oh boy, think of the power of that moment when Jesus says in his words and shows them his wounds, it's okay. I have taken care of everything. We're still friends. I love you. That has power to it, power for us, and it, and it gives us that power to share with other people. Let me tell you this, the, just, just, I mean, this is true theologically, but observing society, including yourself and your family, the second most powerful force in our world today, the second most powerful force is the shame and guilt of sin. Hey, shame is I'm bad, guilt is I've done bad, and those are two different things. We'll do a sermon series on that later. The second most powerful thing in, on this planet is, is the shame and guilt of sin. It robs people, it controls people, it makes people crave and hunger for forgiveness. The first most powerful force on this planet is forgiveness. But here's what happens. People crave and hunger for forgiveness, but we're not sure it's for us. And that's where we want to help be a solution to that problem. I want to tell you a story about a man named Simon Wiesenthal. Simon was... Uh, he, he witnessed Nazi soldiers come into his grandma's home, kill his grandma, and take him prisoner in a concentration camp. He spent years in that concentration camp until one day a nurse showed up and she escorted him into a different room. Simon walked into that room. Now, now he's a, a young adult or an adult. He walked into that room and he saw, lying in, in this darkness, he saw a Nazi soldier lying, fatally wounded, on a bed. His face was wrapped in gauze, and the nurse summoned him and showed him to this soldier who, who reached out a hand to Simon. Ich heiße Karl. My name is Karl, he said. He said, Karl then told Simon, he said, I needed to speak to a Jew. I needed to tell a Jew in my dying moment, I, I need to say something to you, and I need you to be the one who hears it, and I need you to be the one to respond. And in that moment, Carl needed something from Simon, and it was forgiveness. Carl had to tell this story 
to Simon. Here's how uh, Philip Yancey writes this story in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He says this, Carl told about his days in the Hitler Youth Corps and later serving in the SS with honors. He confessed atrocities, horrible acts of cold-blooded murder, and detailed the time when Nazi soldiers lost 30 of their men in an ambush, so they retaliated by gathering up 300 Jews, forcing them into a three-story apartment building, dousing it with gasoline, and launching grenades into it. Mothers and fathers jumped out third-story windows with children in their arms, and officers would shoot them on the way down for target practice. Carl, struggling to talk through the gauze around his face, says to Simon, I am now left with my guilt. And he asked for forgiveness. Stunned, Simon stared out the window in silence. After what seemed like an eternity, he looked back at the dying man and walked out of the room without a word of forgiveness. The, the burden of Carl's sins upon the entire Jewish race felt like it was just heaving on, on Simon's soul and he could not say the words. It haunted him for a lifetime. Could he actually have forgiven this man for all of these atrocities? Should he have forgiven this man for all that he had done as if everything was okay? What about the people in your circle of influence? and the things they have done, maybe directly to you, maybe to your peeps, your group, your class, your race, your neighborhood, your department, your family. What about them? Can you really forgive them for what they've done? Should you forgive? The second most powerful force on this planet is the shame and guilt of sin. And believe me, the people in your circle of influence are suffering from it. And you can see how people in this world devise their own version of forgiveness, their own schemes to take care of it. The most popular is, I've done bad, I'm going to make up for that by doing good, but then everyone, because they're a human being, is not able to produce, is not able to get that to work and be the perfect person that they're trying to be. And the shame and guilt remain. Think of the power that you and I have, like Jesus had to his, his shivering, shuddering disciples to, to pronounce forgiveness, to pronounce the grace of God on those people. It's not only our responsibility, it's our, it's our right we have the power and authority to do that. So Jesus says in John 20, to us and to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That's the ministry of the keys. 
Jesus gives, pulls out of his pocket the keys and gives us the keys to people's souls and says, you can lock them up or you can unlock them and let Jesus walk in. Can we? Yes. Should we? Absolutely. goes on to say this about the, the, the interaction of Jesus with his disciples. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. It's a little odd, right? Is that, that not quite normal? You don't have a report of someone saying, He breathed on them. But I want you to think of another breath that Jesus let out, that he exhaled. Right? It has, it's related to this one. As Jesus exhaled and spoke words of promise and grace and forgiveness to his disciples, but there is another breath that Jesus let out that the Bible tells us about. It was his last breath on this earth as he was hanging on the cross. His very last, the last air that left his lungs and exited his lips, and there was no more air going in. That was it. He was dead. Right? Here's what the Bible says about that last breath. It says this, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. I'm imagining something like a loud groan or sigh. Oh. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus breathed his last. Jesus gave up his spirit. This was not the grim reaper appearing to Jesus, squeezing the life out of him and saying, you die now. Death was not in control even in the moment of death for Jesus. What does the Bible say? Jesus gave up his spirit. Jesus breathed. Jesus is the subject, breathed his last. Jesus is in control even to the very last moment of his life, even to this very last breath. It's Jesus' choice to let that air come out of his lungs, to, to pass his lips, and to be gone. And it was the air of all, your, all of your sins that Jesus was offering up to God the Father on your behalf, and it was all exiting and then gone not to be taken back in, not to be part of any life. Your sins might gone. Your shame and guilt, it, it passed away. And it breathed its last. I wonder what that very first breath of Jesus three days later in the tomb was like. You ever wonder this? Was it, was it slow and gentle? And with a smile? Was it, I don't know, was it shocking and sudden? <coughs> I, I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but it was this. It was different than his last breath going out, a breath of sin and judgment on sin and condemnation on guilt. It was the breath of new life, the breath of victory, of resurrection. 
And now that is air that Jesus has. So when it says Jesus breathes on us, after he rose from the dead, he breathed on his disciples, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the Ruach of God. That means wind. That means breath. That means air. God is air. God is breath. God is fresh, new, resurrected life. And when Jesus says, I breathe on you, he's saying, you have my power of the resurrection and my authority of my words and promises. When you speak about Jesus to others, you're the air of Jesus is coming out of your soul and your spirit and it's crossing your lips and it's going, it's filling their soul with him. When you forgive others, the breath of, of God, the Holy Spirit, the breath is crossing the threshold of your mouth and it's going into their ears and into their heart and into their life and it's giving them new life. The power of that the authority that you and I have as agents and ambassadors of God. That's, I think that's the most important do-it-yourself project we could be involved in. And it is do-it-yourself because Jesus makes us his agents. He makes us his ambassadors. You have people in your circle of influence that I don't have in mind. That means it's your job to bring them Jesus more than mine. Right? We all have our, our people, our families, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. The power that we have to unlock their heart so Jesus can walk in. It's a do-it-yourself project that cannot fail. Our Jesus Loves Me group has, has been meeting, and uh, one, of, one of our former attendees, an alumni of our Jesus Loves Me group, We've been watching closely as she's been on a trip to South Africa to cage dive with sharks. I don't know why her father would let her do that. I don't, I don't know. Put, let, let her be in danger like this. But uh, so sure enough, she goes, cave diving, right? You, you, you're, in a, you're in a cage. It's a one-person cage, and it's, the cage is let down, and then you're in the midst of sharks swirling around and swimming around you so you can be close to the sharks. Uh, okay, if that's your thing, I'll pray for you. Uh, but it, it's her job to climb into the cage. It's her job to look through her own underwater goggles to view and see the sharks. It's her job to take her camera and take pictures of the sharks. It's her job to make sure her foot doesn't dangle out of the cage a little bit too far. But she's taken there by professionals, by experts, by authorities. They know where the sharks are and aren't. They've done this before. They know how the gauge of steel that's necessary in a cage so that a shark can't stick its nose in there and wedge through. And I'd, I'd be scared of that. Right? Oh, the, so she's under the, the guidance of professionals and experts all the way. It's do-it-yourself when she's in the cage, but she has the backing and guidance of professionals. That, my friends, when it feels like you're cage diving with sharks because you're approaching someone else's sin, don't be afraid. That's a powerful, powerful scene, whether it's her videos showing sharks brushing up against that cage, or whether it's you approaching someone about their sin. And when that's a struggle for you, you're in a good place. I'd be concerned if it's not a struggle for you. 
if you take it so clearly, so nonchalantly, and say, ah, good, I'm, I'm glad, I can't wait to blast someone else. But when it's a struggle, make sure it's a struggle in this way. If it's a struggle and it's all, the struggle's all about you, I don't want my feelings hurt, I don't want another mess in my life, I don't want other responsibility, you're not going to approach that person. And that's the sign that your struggle is about you that's not good. When you still have a struggle, but the struggle is about them, your struggle is a concern that you're going to approach them in the right way. Your struggle is a wrestling in prayer that they'll receive your words and be forgiven. Your struggle is about them. When your struggle is about them, you will take action and you will approach gently, lovingly, humbly. There's the difference between the two. So happy cage diving, happy approaching others about their sins. You and I are ambassadors and angels, a a agents and ambassadors, and we have the power of the keys, the very power and breath of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, if it, were, if it were our choice, I think we'd say that you should give your keys to someone else. Jeremiah did a pretty good job. Moses, David writes Psalms, Peter, James, John. But then it's not up to us, is it, Lord? It's up to you. And, and you look at us and you, and you breathe on us like you breathe on your disciples, like you call Jeremiah, and you say, go, I am sending you. Help us, Jesus, to take up that task with more fervor, with more appreciation for the power of forgiveness of these keys that you place in our hand. Help us to be true and honest and real, first and foremost with our own sin, putting it in your hands, trusting in your mercy, trusting in your promises, and knowing that you will not crush our heart and walk away, but you will fill us with your grace and your love and your peace. From that place, help us, Jesus, to share your love and your grace and your peace with others as a church, as individuals in our own private lives and help us to see the power of your forgiveness at work. Amen.